Our scripture reading today will be taken from Romans 12. If you'd open your Bibles there, please. We'll be looking at verses 9 to 16 as we continue on in our exposition of this book of Romans. Now, Paul has, in the first 11 chapters, laid out very carefully and clearly the doctrine of the gospel of the grace of God. In fact, this whole book is designed to reveal the doctrine of the gospel of the grace of God, which I think you'll find fascinating this morning in light of what he's going to say. Then he establishes the fact that in view of that doctrine, we need to present ourselves a living sacrifice, not be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of our minds, then go to work on analyzing ourselves honestly and objectively to determine what God's will is for our lives. He picks that up with verse 9, in which he says, let love be without hypocrisy, literally love without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, literally abhor evil, cling to what is good. By the way, that word abhor means hate. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the scriptures this morning and the exposition later. Will you join with me please in prayer? Our Father, we bow before thee today to thank thee for when we've gone through a book like Romans, thy sovereign grace, you have condescended to people like us, and that's humbling. We pray that we would be the kind of individuals and the kind of church that would end up accomplishing your perfect will individually and collectively. We pray that in your amazing grace and mercy that saved us, you will develop us and that you will use us. Convict us to keep our focus on you and your precious word, and may your word come to life in our lives. I pray that you would always give us wisdom to determine thy will. Grant us discernment to grasp what's true, what's false. We pray that you would increase our progress. Give us more discipline and fervor, Lord, as we live out our days on this earth, and give us great growth in knowledge of truth. May our lives and this church truly count for thee. We pray for those who need thy special grace today. We think of those families that are grieving the loss of loved ones. We want to pray for your special comforting grace on them. We pray for the sick, Lord, and we have many of this church that fall into that category, some who are even in the hospital. We would pray that you would heal them, that they would sense your presence. We pray that you would draw them to thyself in this hour. We pray for those who have a variety of needs, Lord, in this congregation. We pray you provide for them. We thank you for all who are here today. We pray that you would take notice of them and bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's almost back to school time. Back when I was in school, any school I ever attended, they had what was called orientation. Do they still do that? Oh, yeah, okay, I see a lot of heads nodding. Orientation was a period of time at the beginning of the semester when students would be welcome to kind of acclimate them to things, including their expectations. We were introduced to a variety of things so we would know how to function properly at school. That's pretty much what God's doing here in the book of Romans. 
After giving 11 chapters of heavy grace gospel doctrine, he says, now you need to know how I expect this stuff to affect you. We need to have an orientation so you can learn how to function properly as my family. Now, it's fascinating to me to see what Paul does here. You would think that now that they have a handle on the doctrine of God's grace, the first thing he'd say is, you need to go out and evangelize people. I mean, what you need to do is go door to door. You now know the essence of the gospel, so what you need to do is develop an evangelistic strategy or develop a series of programs or go to work on increasing the numbers. That's what you need to do, but that's not what God does here. God basically says, now that you know the gospel, get to work on yourself. And get to work on yourself and your relationship with others in the family of God. Uh, Discover your own gift and then use it properly in the family of God because that is God's perfect will for your life. What Paul says when we come to this text is the perfect will of God is a church that's comprised of individual believers who are developing and using their gifts and they're relating to each other in God-honoring ways in their attitudes and in their actions. And as near as I can determine here, the size of the church has nothing to do with this. The amount of dollars the church has has nothing to do with this. The number of activities or programs has nothing to do with this. What's described here is a group of people who are serious about the word of God, serious about the things of the Lord, serious about developing in righteousness, in their relationships, and in various reactions to a variety of contexts. Now, the early church was not a place of a lot of heavy activity where you're running there every day of the week. They didn't have gimmicks and programs and marketing strategies. They didn't have bands and light shows and spectacular public presentations on big screens. The early church was just being developed by humble people who would go usually on the first day of the week. They'd gather together, they would pray, they'd sing hymns, and then they would listen to the word of God. So Paul, when he develops this gospel of grace, says, now there are four ingredients that you need to have as a church if you're moving in a direction that's consistent with the perfect will of God. And the first ingredient is a church moving in the direction of God's perfect will does not have hypocritical love. It does not have hypocritical love. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Most love concepts are just shallow and hollow. Like, for example, when Allie McGraw in Love Story said, love means never having to say you're sorry. Really? Is that it? How about Patsy Cline? I fall to pieces each time I see you. There's love. Or the great theologian Dean Martin who said, when the moon hits your eyes like a big pizza pie, that's amore. Or then you've got the Beatles. My heart went boom when I crossed that room and I fell in love with her. That's the shallowness of love. God says, that's not how it works for me. That's not how it works in my church. It's not to be some phony, shallow thing. And he apparently knew, obviously he does know because he's God, that people, when it comes to love, they can play games. I mean, when it comes to love... The fact of the matter is most are not real, most are not true, most of it is not biblical love. But love from God's perspective and love from our perspective are two different things. And he says, you want love from my perspective? It has to be without hypocrisy. 
I don't want people playing games here. Not wearing masks, and that's what the word actually means. I don't want people pretending that they love when in fact they don't. And love with hypocrisy is not love. But in Christianity, quite frankly, a lot that is pawned off as being love is nothing but hypocritical stuff because it's not honest. He starts with that. He said that's where the church begins. It begins with people that really care about each other. They're open. They're honest. They're not playing games. See, ladies and gentlemen, it's possible to go to church and sing and listen and give and even serve and just be nothing more than a hypocrite play actor. God says, I don't want that in my people. I don't want my people operating like that. Don't wear masks. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with each other. Don't be some fake person who's putting on a mask. And then, after he says, I don't want hypocritical love, he kind of gives three descriptions of the kind of love he does want. And the first description he gives is, non-hypocritical love continually hates what's evil. Let love be without hypocrisy, hate or abhor what is evil. Now, the modern idea of love that most people have is a love that has no concern for the righteousness of God. It has no concern for the holiness of God. It has no concern for the justice of God. God's love is a highly judicially calculated kind of love. It's not some sentimental slop. And that's the way most people look at love. And to have the right kind of love, you must have the right kind of hate. That's right. To have the right kind of love, you have to have the right kind of hate. And this is the love, by the way. It's the agape love in the original. So there's an article, though. We're talking about the specific kind of love that means something to the Lord. It has the right kind of hate. As a believer, we have a legitimate right to hate. What a concept. Proper love has proper hate. And what you have to hate if you're going to have an unhypocritical love in the sight of the Lord, is evil. That's the object of the hatred. Anything that's evil, big evil, small evil, private evil, public evil, thought evil, action evil, pride evil, hate it all. And the word abhor or hate is a particular word that is in the present tense, it means to have this continual attitude about you. It's in an intense form. So we're talking here about continually having an intense hatred for that which is evil. This is not just some emotional surge that we have from within. We're talking here about a very volitional, calculated type of hatred. One who is going to love right is going to hate right. One who's going to love right is going to have a calculated hatred that moves away from evil. There's an intense revulsion when it comes to looking at evil. And when you hate evil, you're godly in love. And the word that's used there for evil, poineron, it sounds familiar. Porneron kind of sounds like pornography, doesn't it? Actually, that word comes from this word. But the actual word evil covers the whole gamut of different forms of evil. Certainly you include that which is immoral. 
That is in part of the word, but the fact of the matter is true righteousness, true love, the right kind of love, a non-hypocritical kind of love continually hates that which is evil, including immoral things. Evil is the target. And God said, you want to be my family that's going somewhere according to my will? You'll learn to hate the right things, hate the wrong things. So when a church is moving toward the perfect will of God, it'll hate evil, move away from evil. I mean, believers, if we're really right in our relationship with God, we should be known for two things, our love and our hate. And if people look at us and say, boy, they hate that, that's right, we do. We do hate that. That's part of a God-honoring testimony. Frankly, this means that the church is not going to be a place where we just tolerate anything. The church is not going to be a place where we just say, okay, let's turn our head and let it go. It'll be a place that at times has to take a positional stand because there's an actual moving away from what's right and true, and that is hated by a church that's right. So there's Paul's first description of non-hypocritical love. It hates right. The second description is non-hypocritical love continually clings to what is good. You'll notice in verse 9, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. The Bible presents not only is love hating evil, but it's also clinging to good. It's an interesting verb, cling. It's a verb that would indicate you actually cement yourself, glue yourself to good things. That which is classified as good. Anything that God would classify as good, that's what you want to cling to. All the context of life, all of the settings that you find yourself in, all of the doctrines that are good, you want to cling to that. And really, when it comes down to hating evil and clinging to good, there are no gray areas there. So we're not talking about gray area compromises. We're talking here about you hate one that's evil, but then you cling to that which is good. And the adjective good literally refers to good people, good things, good actions, good movies, good existences. I mean, things that would be morally and acceptable and good in the sight of the living God. That's what you cling to. You cling to that. That's God's will for the church. That's God's will for individuals who go to church. So a church that's functioning right is glued to good things in that church there will not be a promotion of bad things. There will not be a promotion of evil things. A non-hypocritical love will continually hate evil, cling to good. Thirdly, it will be devoted to others of the same kind. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. Sometimes in family life, you know, just from your own family, that Things just don't run smooth all the time. I mean, there are family members that make mistakes. There are family members who annoy you. There are family members who have different quirks. But two times in this particular verse, Paul is clear to point out we need to have a love for one another. The pronoun another is another of the same kind. Alas versus heteros, another of a different kind. And what Paul is basically saying here is we need to be devoted to each other in the context of the family of God. We need to be devoted to each other. We need to be pursuing the same objectives of hating evil and loving good and devoted to each other in that very context. Now, it's true. Some are easier to love than others, 
But God wants all people loved and all people should be viewed as being important. And nobody should be standing off as some cold, standoffish type of individual. And the text says, give preference to one another in honoring one another. So you don't just pick out an isolated few that you like. Isolated few that seems to have the same interest you have. But any believer in the context of the church, any believer that's hating evil and loving good and they're a believer in the Lord should be our top priority. And that's why at times it's true that you have wonderful relationships that develop in the church. They're on the same page. I mean, the people are moving forward. They love the scriptures. They're developing in the things of the Lord. They develop good, intimate relationships. That's good. That's right. In a right-functioning church, brothers and sisters will love one another that are after the same objectives. We're not competitors here. We all have our individual lives. We all are going to give an account to the Lord. We're part of the same family. We're part of the same team. So what Paul is saying is in a church that's going in a direction that truly is the will of God, there's going to be a real sense of family unity that's taking place there. Which brings us to his second ingredient. A church moving in the direction of God's perfect will does have an intense focus on serving the Lord. Verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. There are three descriptions that Paul gives concerning the kind of intense focus that God has as his will for the church. Description number one is, I don't want people lagging. In fact, he says... uh, I want my people with an intense focus serving the Lord, not lagging, not lagging behind. It's an interesting word. It's the idea of hesitating, backing off from the assignment, from the responsibility, backing away rather than being diligent, having an earnest zeal. And so what Paul is basically saying here is, look, if you're going to serve the Lord, don't be some lagger. And there are always those around the church, you know, they talk a good game, like they're real great servants, but then when you give them an assignment or something, they never follow through on it. They don't get it done. Just talk. Don't be like that. If you take on some responsibility, see it through. In fact, this applies not only to church life, but all of life. In your work, God is not going to bless sloth. He blesses those that are diligent. They don't lag. They get at their job. They get it done. He blesses that in work. He blesses it in the church. He blesses it in life. God wants us diligent in what we do. And let me just say this. If you are content with being inactive, you have a problem. Well, the problem's not with me. The problem is with the Lord. Because he doesn't want a bunch of people that are inactive. What these words mean is a church that's developing right. People will serve. They'll be earnest. They won't be lagging behind. God's not impressed with excuses. He's not impressed with laziness. He's not impressed with people that in the church have a lackadaisical attitude. He loves it when people do what they can using their various gifts and abilities and skills that he's given them. He loves it when they work as a team to try to accomplish a work for the glory of God, not lagging. There's description number one. Description number two is serving the Lord should be fervent. 
He says that, fervent in spirit. There are some people that are so lack, lackadaisical, that you can't even get them warm enough to get in their car and go to church. And yet Paul says here, I want God's people fervent in spirit. It means at a boiling level. That's the word. Paul basically says, I want God's people at a boiling level. I don't want them lukewarm when it comes to me, my word, my work, my church. I want them intense. I want them to have an intensity that wants to get there. And notice where the boiling fervency is. It's in the spirit. It's on the inside. It's not on the outside. It's on the inside. And because there's an article, the, before the noun spirit, it's talking about every single individual. Every single individual either lags or is fervent. What God loves to see, what God's will is for a person's life, is they have this internal burning passion for him, for his word, for his work, a boiling fire that just simmers in them that wants to please the Lord. That's his second description. His third description is intense focus in serving the Lord serves. Serving the Lord. That's what people need to realize. When I'm working for the Lord at church, I'm serving the Lord. And in a church that is functioning right, people will serve the Lord. Now we're blessed in this church because we have a tremendous number of people who take that seriously in various ministries. And we have a lot of ministries in this church. And that participle serving is present tense, meaning they continually serve. They continually serve the Lord. There's an intensity to what they do. God's people may have setbacks, but they keep serving. They don't quit. They certainly get knocked down at times, but they get back up. God's people keep at it. They keep serving the Lord. They keep working in God's church. They keep working for God's glory. That's the perfect will of God for the church. That's the perfect will of God for every one of our lives. Which brings us to his third ingredient, a church that's moving in the direction of God's perfect will will have a perpetual endurance. Verse 12, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Now every church and every person who's a believer has some setbacks in life. Every church has setbacks. Every church has some warfare. Every individual has some warfare, but churches and individuals that are moving in God's direction have an endurance to them, an endurance. And there are three descriptions of the kind of endurance the church has. Number one, they find their joy and their hope. That's what verse 12 says, rejoicing in hope. They realize that we're not going to be finding a lot of joy in the world's troubles and trials. That's not where we find joy. We find some joy in the hope we have. We have eternal salvation. We have the privilege of serving the Lord, laying up treasures in heaven. We have the privilege of looking forward to a future eternity with the Lord. That's where our joy is. It's not here. It's in our future hope. Secondly, the church perseveres when in trials. Verse 12, perseverance in tribulation. We have trials. And by the way, that word tribulation, we're not talking about mosquito bites here. 
I mean, when we talk about tribulation, when Paul uses that word, he's talking about sometimes believers, they go through tough stuff. Believers get hit with things that aren't fun. They go through trials. And yet, when they're going through those trials, they have a steadfast endurance to them. Godly people hang in there. They don't quit. They keep at it. And that word, persevere, is the antithesis of running away. It means that they stay put. People who are after God's perfect will for their lives, they aren't quitters. They may feel like quitting. That's normal. They may feel like running, but they don't do it. They stay at it. They stay after it. They stay active, even when they're hit with trials. And the third description of the endurance is they're devoted to prayer. Verse 12 said, devoted to prayer. I'm going to ask a personal question. I don't want you to answer me. Don't even move and let anybody know what's going on in your mind and heart when I ask this question. But when is the last time that you personally, privately, got alone and talked to God? I'm not talking about public prayer meetings. I'm not talking about that at all. When is the last time that you personally, privately, got alone with the Lord and talked to God? People who are accomplishing God's perfect will are praying people. And it's not for show, like Phariseeism. They're people who pray. And when you have a church that's successful, you can be sure behind that are praying people. And when troubles and trials hit, God's perfect will for his people is you pray. You pray. Yes, it's wise to get other people praying for you, but you pray. Because the power is in prayer. There are answers to prayer. There's survival in prayer. God knows we need to be talking to him. In fact, it thrills the heart of God when his people pray. So he said, you want to know the key to endurance? They keep their focus on their future hope. They just stick with it through trials, and they are devoted to prayer. And then he says, a church moving in the direction of God's perfect will will have a godly situational reaction. He describes in verses 13 to 16 a series of situations that come up in the church, come up to believers, where they have to react to different ways and to different things here. And he mentions about seven situational reactions that he wants people to have who are after his will. Situational reaction number one, the reaction to those who have needs. Verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints. There are going to be times when a believer will see another believer who has real needs. And by the way, the word needs, kreia, is talking about necessity needs. We're not talking here about cable television. We're talking here about necessity needs. And there will be times when a believer will see another believer with real need, and that believer who's functioning in the way that God would have them function, they are going to do what they can to help. When a church is functioning right, that's the way it works. That believer will not have to seek out necessarily the benevolence fund, but that is there and There are those that monitor that to help people. They keep track of needs of people. They try to do what they can to minister to the needs of people. Church has a responsibility to do that, but so does an individual. 
The cry of the world is save and hoard. The cry of the Bible is give and help. And I want you to notice, by the way, who the ministry is to, in verse 13, the needs of the saints. And since there's an article, the, before saints, I would suspect we're talking about the specific saints in the context of the church. So we're not just talking about anybody in general here. We're talking about specific saints in the context of the church when God surfaces needs, people that are functioning right, do what they can to meet them. There's situation number one. Situation number two is reaction to saints who need a place to stay. In verse 13, practicing hospitality. Notice carefully, practicing hospitality. I want to again point out the context of this. This is practicing hospitality to the saints. We're not talking here about you let any skid row derelict or drug addict on the street come and stay in your home. That's a dangerous thing to do. We're talking here about hospitality shown to the saints. And the article, the, again before the noun saints, would suggest these are specific believers that you know of. Specific believers that God brings across your path. We're not saying you should give any criminal type a place to stay for the night. The text is very clear on this point. The saints. The saints. And back in this culture, they didn't have nice places they could stop and say it was a brutal world in that first century Roman world. So it was dangerous for some of these people to actually stay in some of the places they would have to stay. So one of the great privileges that believers would have would be to show hospitality and get them into a place where it's safe and clean and secure. The third situation is how we relate to those that persecute us. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. There will be times when in our lives we will have those that will just be after us in a negative way. It's like they're pursuing us. And the word persecute carries with it the idea that at times there will be those situations where we will find ourselves at odds with some specific individual or person who will not be real nice to us and could care less if they are nice to us. Now the text says we're to bless those who persecute us. And the idea behind blessed is twofold. We're to pray that God would bring them to repentance so that he could bless them. And we're also to tell them what they need to do in order to have God bless them. So let's say, for example, that you live in a country that's being governed by a government that doesn't look too favorably upon what's righteous or right. What do we do? Condemn them? Criticize them? Pray for them. Pray for the government. Don't curse it. Ask God to work. So behind this scene of blessing our enemies is we're praying for them and we're communicating the truth to them. Now we have the responsibility to communicate the truth because we have the responsibility to hate evil. So we can't just sit idly by and say, well, evil's okay. We have to come out and say, no, that's wrong according to the word of God. But by the same token, we have a responsibility to pray for those who would make it hard for us. Now, if someone is beating you up or shooting at your family with a gun, you're not going to ask God to bless them so they can do more damage. I mean, we're not supposed to ask God to bless evil. We're supposed to hate evil. 
But I think a great illustration of this is our Lord in Luke 23. He asked God to forgive them, the people that crucified him, because they didn't know what they were doing. He doesn't ask God to just bless them because they've crucified him. He's praying that God would be willing to forgive them if they turn to him. You will have situations in life where God will actually allow us to go through times when people will be against us. And God makes it clear, we'll see this, Lord willing, next Sunday, that we don't have to take vengeance. We can leave vengeance to him. He'll settle it. That's what he promises to do. You'll see that, Lord willing, next week. But we can pray for someone who's persecuting us that God could change the situation for them and for us. That is the will of God. Now, the fourth situation is reaction to those who are emotional. Verse 15, probably one of the greatest counseling verses you'll ever read in the Bible. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Some people are so absorbed with themselves, they don't get this. I would say this, it's probably easier for most people to weep with people that are weeping than it is to rejoice with people that are joyful. And the reason being, rejoice with those that rejoice. If somebody's rejoicing over something good that's happened to them, some promotion they got, something wonderful that they've seen God do, people in the church, you know, they're proud. They can be jealous. They can begin to envy that. So the great counseling verse God gives to his people is whatever situation that other person is in, you empathize with them. If they're in a joyful state, you share their joy. If they're in a sorrowful state, share their sorrow. Don't be so absorbed with yourself. And there are some people like that, by the way. They'll go in to visit somebody even in a hospital or sick room and somehow instead of focusing on the person that's in the sickbed, they start talking to them about their problems. And I'm thinking, what kind of craziness is that? That's not what God wants. We should be other-oriented in those contexts, concerned about the other people, not sharing with them the stuff from our lives and world. Rejoice with those that rejoice, weep with those that weep. The fifth situation is the reaction to others who have their own minds. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. The idea is be of the same mind in the sense that we love the Lord, we love the word of God. There's to be a unity in that, especially in the church. We are to see the value of every person as being part of the body. We are to have a family unity to us. It doesn't mean that we are all going to see things eye to eye on everything because we're at different levels. I mean, somebody that has a greater grasp of theology and exegesis is at a better perspective of understanding things than someone who isn't. But that doesn't mean we can't get along and we shouldn't have a unity. We should be able to help one another and use our skills and abilities to bring others along to help them. The sixth situation is reaction to those who are lowly in mind. Verse 16 Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Boy, there's a great verse. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. You know, some people, I don't care where they're at. Church doesn't matter. 
They want to associate with the upper class, you know. Because they're not thinking about ministry. They're thinking about, you know, that person there would be a good person to know because they can help me climb the ladder. That'd be a good person to know because we want position and power and prominence. So as a result of that, they'll actually sometimes neglect lowly people so they can snuggle up to the high and mighty. What Paul says here is don't be some snob. Don't be some highfalutin snob. You have a mindset that relates to everybody. Doesn't matter what side of the tracks they're from. And finally, reaction to thinking about yourself in your own mind, and he brings that theme up again in verse 16, don't be wise in your own estimation. You know, Martin Luther said, God made the world out of nothing, and as long as we see ourselves as nothing, God can make something out of us. But the moment we see ourselves as something, God won't make anything out of us. What Paul says here is, don't be thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. He's brought up that theme multiple times to these Romans. See, proud, haughty thinking is anathema to God. We're back to that basic admonition, don't think more highly of yourself than you want, because if you do that, you're not going to go anywhere for the Lord. And Anybody who will ultimately be raised up by the Lord to a standing among people will recognize their lowly standing in the sight of God. Quite honestly, who of us here deserves Jesus Christ in our lives? You talk about associating with nobodies. The second member of the Godhead steps out of heaven and comes here to have a relationship with us? Who in the world are we for that? Paul said, that's the kind of thinking that's God's perfect will. Those are the kinds of things you want to pursue. You get to work on you. You get to work on relationships in the church. Because God says, that is my perfect will for your life. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, listen, you can have a wonderful relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, but that's the only way you'll have it. It won't come by works. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, right where you sit, you just pray to the Lord and invite the Lord Jesus Christ to come in and be your Savior and take over your life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. Forgive us for times we haven't measured up to this, because there have been times we haven't. We know that your word is powerful, it's living, it's active, it's sharp, it's designed to cut deep into our souls and minds, and I pray that that Holy Spirit would take that word with this passage today and do exactly what he needs to do with every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.